ahead and take your Bible this evening and we'll turn to the book of Colossians and we'll get started here in a moment. Uh, do want to earnestly commit over the next few days, this next week to prayer as we are getting ready to do vacation Bible school. Um, do want to trust the Lord with that. Um, the boys, they were able to go to Bible school on Monday of last week, and uh, we're thinking that's where Simeon picked up the sickness he's got, and then from him getting it, he decided to spread it all over the whole family, and by Monday morning, we woke up, and somehow, praise the Lord, I was the only one that didn't have anything going on, Um, and I'm thankful for that, but at the same time, I'd rather 10 to 1 it be me than them, and so... Uh, They have been very, very ill um, the last two days, uh, Emily especially, so keep her in your prayers. But our hope at this point is that the Lord will keep it away from me and that it will go away from them by this coming Sunday and Monday. Uh, I'd hate for something like that to knock us out for this next week. That would be devastating. And so uh, just keep that in in your prayers and hopefully... Uh, We'll get to that point, and we'll just skedaddle right past it, and everything will be just fine. That's our prayer. That's our hope. And uh, I hope that you've had a good week. That's that's what I've been praying, uh, as I've been praying for all of you, uh, and as our boys have been praying for all of you, because believe it or not, that happens on a very regular basis, uh, that we go to the Lord in prayer each night, and uh, one of them will pray, and they pray for you, and uh, I pray for you, and... Uh, you're always on our hearts and on our minds. And because of what we do, sometimes we get overwhelmed with all the different things going on outside of church. But I want you to know that uh, you're constantly in our thoughts and in our prayers. Uh, each and every one of you. Uh, we think of you regularly throughout the course of the week. And uh, if you ever need anything, you always make sure and call us and let us know. I don't want you to ever hesitate. Don't ever think that you'll inconvenience me. Uh, I've said it from day one that outside of my family, this is priority number one for me. And so if there are other things that need to take a back burner, by all means, uh, that's one of the reasons why I have maintained a self-employment schedule is so that I can maneuver those hours and maneuver those days to fit whatever happens here with you. Uh, And so don't ever hesitate to call me. Don't ever hesitate to... Let us know when something's going on that you need help with, that you need advice on, that you need prayer over, uh, and we will do our best to make sure we answer those calls, and if we don't, we will get those messages, and we'll respond to them as quickly as possible. Colossians chapter number one, as we continue our study on this book to the Laodiceans, yes, to the Colossians, but also a letter to the church of Laodicea. Spent a lot of time looking at Laodicea in Revelation chapter number three and tried to glean some information and some lessons from that church. And we saw in every way, shape, and form that that church age of Laodicea is what we are living in currently. I don't think there's any doubt. I don't think there's any question. I don't think there's any argument against that reality. And as such, uh, there are some things that we need to be prepared for, uh, that we need to be bracing for. And there are some ways in which we need to be anchored because the seas are going to get rough and the trials we're going to face are going to increase, not decrease. Uh, 
and as we know, it doesn't matter what uh, political party is in office. It doesn't matter uh, who's in charge or who's in control as far as on this side of heaven. Uh, but we're thankful that we know someone who's uh, the authority of all things at all times, and he is our God, and we are his children, and we need to be prepared for what lies ahead. His plan will not be thwarted. His plan will not be slowed down. His plan will not be altered. Uh, we are on a one-way course to victory if you're a child of God. Uh, ultimately, that's how the story ends for us. But I want to be sure that as I approach these final days, that my heart is in the right place, that my mind is in the right place, uh, that I am heading in the right direction, that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing while all of this is unfolding. I don't want to get sidetracked. I don't want to, I certainly don't want to fall backward. That's the temptation of the final days is that there's going to be this great falling away. And I believe that the book of Colossians is here to protect against that specifically. And so as we've jumped into this book in Colossians chapter number 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, we saw really just an introduction to the book of Colossians. But in it, we noted that Paul knew who he was in Christ. He knew what his responsibility was. He knew who his community was, and he adapted to that community. That's one of the things that speaks so loudly to me, and it's something that Brother Harlan and I have talked about many, many times, is that it's important not only to know your community, but to adapt to your community as much as spiritually you can. And what we mean by that is, is that there are times that uh, you have to, I shouldn't say loosen your standards, I don't mean that at all, but uh, there are times that you need to move in a certain direction in order to more fit into your community. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He said, I become all things to all men that I might win some. And so that's the Apostle Paul. He knew his community and he also knew what he was here for. He knew his necessity. He was here to preach the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that through that grace, we can then have peace with God. And aren't you thankful for that peace that comes from his grace? Now, moving on from there, we saw... In each of these stages that we work through, through the book of Colossians, we're going to see that there's something lacking. There's something that's missing in this church age of Laodicea in both the Colossian church, the church at Colossae, and also the church at Laodicea. There's something missing. There's something that's supposed to be there that's not there. And that's why the Apostle Paul is coming along and saying, this is needful. He wouldn't be saying it's needful if it was already there, okay? And so the very first thing we're looking at is the need for sincerity. In the final church age, in the last days, there will be a gross lack of sincerity within the life of the church. You're going to have a lot of people that say that they are one thing, but in their actions, in their discussions, uh, in their priorities, as you look across the gamut of their life, you will see that something is not quite adding up. Because face-to-face, they're telling me one thing, but their life is showing me something entirely different. There's going to be a load of this going on in the last days. Now, with that said, jump in at verse number 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it, 
and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. It's apparent here in verse number seven that this man by the name of Epaphras is the pastor of the church at Colossae. Verse eight, who also declared unto us your love in the spirit. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Let's pray. Lord, we ask as we enter into your word tonight, you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, may these not just simply be words that we put together hoping to get through the night, but Lord, we want tonight to be special. We want this time to be filled with your spirit. We want your word to have free course and be glorified. These folks have come tonight at a midweek service. They didn't have to come tonight. It wasn't required of them to be here. Lord, they chose to come. And Lord, it blesses my heart that they're here, and I know it does yours as well. And so, Lord, I pray, knowing that they have come tonight to learn and to grow in their faith and to draw closer to you, Lord, I pray that you will achieve that in them through your spirit and through the teaching of your word. Every situation, every trial, Lord, that we have discussed leading into this lesson, Lord, I pray you'll be with each and every one. Lord, would you open our eyes to see how we might be a blessing and a help to those in need. And Lord, we'll praise you for what you do. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we worked our way through these few verses here, we started out by seeing that we need to be real in our gratitude. We need to be real in our gratitude. And we talked about the fact that there's a difference between acting thankful and being thankful. There's a big difference between those two. Anyone can act thankful. Anyone can say thank you. But to be truly grateful, especially in our day, a day of entitlement, a day in which we are owed everything and we shouldn't have to do anything to get it. This is a very dangerous time for gratitude, and we're seeing it all around us every single day. Just saw another video today. Someone went and uh, they were beating up a, an elderly lady so that they could have her tennis shoes. Uh, and I just, I just am astounded by what I'm seeing in this area of gratitude. There's just none of it. Uh, but let it not be named among God's people. Let us be a grateful people at all times. Uh, in everything, the Bible says, give thanks. Number two, we're to be real in our prayer life. To be real in our prayer life. And we took some time. We looked at James chapter number 5, verses 16 through 18. And we saw that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If you need change, if you see a need for change... The fastest and most appropriate and most powerful way that you can affect change is to be a sincere prayer warrior. That's how you affect change. I just don't know if I, if I can really make a difference. You start praying. And I mean really praying. And I believe with all my heart God will hear that prayer. He'll answer that prayer and He'll move in correlation with that prayer. And then we closed last Wednesday night with this idea of being real in our faith. There's a difference between a make-believer and a real believer. A make-believer may have prayed a prayer of some sort, but a real believer is one who trusts in Christ. And there's a big difference between those two. Anyone can say words that the preacher says he's supposed to say or she's supposed to say. But to truly place our faith and trust in Christ is something entirely different. And it is only faith in Christ that saves the soul. A make-believer, in their life, there is no change. Whereas in a real believer, there's great change that takes place. The process of sanctification begins, and it does not end until death. 
In a make-believer, there's no conviction over sin. They can sin and continue to sin without any uh, condemnation on their soul, whereas a true believer is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And the moment that that sin enters, the Holy Spirit whispers and moves and works to eradicate the sin. In a make-believer, there is no fruit. You can look from the time they made a profession of faith to present day, and as you look at it, you see no fruit. In a true believer, a real believer, there is productivity. And you can see it all over their life. You can see uh, family members, and you can see friends, and you can see loved ones that God has added through them. You can see different aspects and different works that they're accomplishing for the cause of Christ. You can see it in the works of their spirit, in the fruits of the spirit, their love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, meekness, temperance. You can see all of these things moving and working in the life of the real believer. In the make-believer, none of that's going on. Something's wrong. Now that's where we cut off, and I did not get to finish this point, and I'm going to finish this point because it is absolutely critical and essential. We're getting ready to go into vacation Bible school. And I have seen over and over and over again in this specific area mistakes made in leading a child to Christ. I have seen I've done it. I've made this mistake before. If I can just get the child to pray the sinner's prayer, then I did my job. That is an error in our thinking. What I am led to do by the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God is to lead that child to faith in Jesus Christ. And until their faith is placed in Christ, there is no salvation. I don't care how many times they try to pray a prayer of open sesame to get them into heaven. It doesn't work that way. Look with me at Matthew chapter 7 and I'll prove it to you. Matthew chapter 7, this, this, this chapter and this verse, I used to avoid like the plague. And the reason I avoided it like the plague is because it went cross-grained everything I was taught growing up in a Baptist church. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't approach it, I wouldn't talk about it, I wouldn't preach it, I wouldn't teach it. Until one day the Holy Spirit of God began moving and working in my heart to show me some things that we had gotten off kilter. And this was a pivotal verse in the process. Matthew chapter number 7 and look at verse 21. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Hold on just a second. Romans chapter 10 verse 13, which is the last verse on every gospel tract ever printed by a Baptist church. Says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, preacher, you're going to have to figure this one out because I'm telling you, something doesn't add up here because Jesus is saying, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Something's wrong. No, nothing's wrong. We just misinterpreted Romans chapter 10. That's all we did wrong. And we plugged it in as a necessary element to salvation that we pray this prayer at the end and that it's the prayer somehow that saves us. Completely an error to the Word of God. Now, what is Jesus teaching us here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21? Well, let's read the rest of the verse. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And we're going to look at that in a minute. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? A bunch of these mega churches, you got these guys prophesying in the name of Jesus. Not only that, it says, in thy name have cast out devils. 
And in thy name have done many wonderful works. Verse 23, it's devastating. I'm going to be honest with you, it's devastating. What he says in verse 23, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me that work iniquity. Can you imagine what that day would be like? To have convinced yourself that by your work for Christ and by your prayers to Christ that somehow you had earned your way to heaven and then to get there and Jesus look you in the face and say, I never knew you. And to tell you, not only that, but to tell you that what you've been doing is working iniquity. <clears throat> How is this possible? What's going on here? Well, what you have is you have someone who's a make-believer. Plain and simple. Their soul has never truly rested in Christ, albeit for the power of it all. Maybe it was for the riches that were associated with it. I mean, the list could go on. Maybe it was for the popularity's sake. Maybe their charisma was such that, that they had drawn and amassed a crowd of folks that had become their followers and there was an element of pride to that. Whatever the motivation was, yes, they prophesied in the name of Jesus. Yes, they called on the name of Jesus. Yes, they did all these wonderful works in the name of Jesus. But at the end of it all, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Depart from me that work iniquity, for I never knew you. So then the question begs to be asked, what is the will of God then? Because I want you to, I want to point back to Verse number 21, it says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What does that mean? Hold your place there in Matthew chapter number 7 and turn over to John chapter number 6. This was, oh, was this ever an aha moment in my life, in my ministry. In my service to the Lord, I began seeing people truly converted after this. Now before this, I do believe there were many, I hope and pray, several, that their conversion was real and true, that I had the privilege to lead to Christ. But boy, I'll tell you, whenever I got a hold of this, whenever I saw this for what I believe God wanted me to see it for, it totally changed the way I present the gospel. It totally changed the way that I lead someone to Christ. And as I saw it, Folks were truly being born again and converted. Every time, no. I wish that was the case, but that's not always the case. I don't have any power over that. That's something that's between them and God only. All I can do is the best I can do. And the one thing I'll tell you is leading them to say a prayer is not the best I can do, but leading them to a full faith in Christ. Now, that's the best I can do through the Holy Spirit guiding. Look at John chapter number 6 and look at verse number 29. Plainly stated for us here is the will of the Father which is in heaven that Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter number 7, verse number 21. John chapter number 6, verse number 29. Jesus answered and saith unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. There it is. You want to know what the will of the Father in heaven is? Believe on the Son. You want to know what His work is that He has for us to do? Lead people to believe on the Son. Where does it all begin in my life? Whenever I believe on the Son. This is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. Faith. It's always been faith, always will be faith. Now, what does our lives look like when sincere faith takes over? 
Well, it's not just about the works we do. Back in Matthew chapter number 7 and verse 22 and verse 23 gives us indication that you can say what you want to say. You can do what you want to do. You can prophesy what you want to prophesy. You can cast out what you want to cast out. But at the end of the day, if there is no faith, Jesus will have to look at us and say, Depart from me, that work iniquity, for I never knew you. Now with that said, I want you to go back to Colossians chapter number 1. Colossians chapter 1, and I want us to see what real faith produces in the life of the believer. Epaphras was just chomping at the bit. He could not wait to tell the Apostle Paul about these three things specifically. Because he knew that upon telling the Apostle Paul about these three indicators that their faith was sincere, that Paul's heart was going to rejoice. Let's look at it. Look at chapter number one and verse number four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, that's where it all began. It's where it all started. Everything hinged. Everything changed in that moment. And I hope that each and every one of you that's here can look back to that moment and see that. I hope you can look back to the moment that you place your faith and trust in Christ and you can see that that is the hinge upon which the door of your life swings. And that before Christ, there was nothing but pain and suffering and sorrow and guilt and shame. And after Christ, that all was taken away and life was made brand new for you. If you look back in your life and what I'm talking about tonight seems foreign to you, examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. There's nothing wrong with doing that. I don't care how long you've been here. I don't care what position you hold. I don't, care, I don't care how many folks that you've maybe got convinced that you're one of his children. I don't want a single person to be in the boat of Matthew chapter 7, not one in this church. And it's why this message, this lesson is so important and why I will not shy away from teaching it. I'm not here to convince anyone that they're not saved. In fact, I'm here to do the opposite to convince you that you are. You may say, preacher, I can't remember the day and the hour, but boy, I can remember when I placed my faith in Christ. You're a child of God. There's a lot of preachers out there. They say, if you can't remember the exact time and the exact day and the exact day, I don't believe that. I don't. And I'll tell you why I don't. I, was, I, I can tell you where I was. And I can tell you what took place. But I can't tell you the exact day, nor can I tell you the hour. Now, Tuesday, yesterday, Technically, for my whole spiritual life, I considered yesterday, July the 7th, my spiritual birthday. If I'm counting right, I think it makes 18 years that I've been in the faith. 18 years. Now, I know now, based on what I'm teaching you this evening, July 7th wasn't the day I was saved. I was actually saved about three or four days before that, but I'm not absolutely certain. Preacher, don't you know that's wrong? No, I don't believe that's wrong. I believe what is critically important is that we know when, in terms of our own heart, we placed our faith and trust in Christ whenever we finally rested our soul in Jesus and that sin was taken away and the Spirit of God was put in its place. I remember that moment. I can take you to the exact location. I can tell you exactly the thoughts that were going through my mind. I can tell you how my heart was twisted with conviction. And the Holy Spirit of God was just pressing and pressing and pressing on my heart. My need to trust in Jesus. And finally this moment came over me. And I thought, Seth, what are you doing? 
You're going through all these different channels that you're being told you've got to go through. And Seth, at the end of the day, there's only one person in the whole universe that can get you out of the sin that you've gotten yourself into, and His name is Jesus Christ. And at that exact moment, everything changed. The gospel finally completely made sense to me. And it wasn't just for everybody else. The gospel was for me. And in that self-same moment that I placed my faith and trust in Christ, I was gloriously born again. I've never looked back. I've never wondered, did I, did I say the right words? Did I really mean the words when I said them? I never thought that because that wasn't what I looked back on as my salvation. It wasn't some specific prayer that I prayed that made me saved. It was my soul resting in Christ that saved me. True, genuine, life-altering faith in Christ. What does that produce in the life of the believer? Well, in verse number 4, halfway through the verse, we, well, we'll read the whole verse. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. First thing that happens when you become a child of God. The people that drove you nuts suddenly become your best friends. What was that? Them church people down the road that I have bad mouthed and made fun of behind their backs. I have said terrible things about them my entire life. Now all of a sudden they're the only people I want to hang out with. What is going on? You got saved. And I believe that the very first indication of a, of a child of God being converted is sincere love. They're just overtaken by it. And they cannot, they can't help it. They can't deny it. They can't go around it. They they can't hide it from anyone. They just fall in love with God's people. Why? Because we're all family now. By the blood of Christ, we are birthed into the same family. And there is a love that comes along with that. And it's real. And it's tangible. Second result of sincere faith gripping the heart is suddenly we're filled with hope. Look at verse number 5. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Suddenly, suddenly, whenever God gets a hold of our hearts and we're truly converted, what was once just nothing but darkness and shame ahead of us, what was nothing but, but dreariness and, and hardship ahead of us, now we, we see things differently. You know, people talk about, and I, I made mention of it, I think maybe on Sunday, the birds singing sweeter and the skies shining brighter and all that. I remember it. And, and maybe it wasn't the same for you, and that's okay. I'm not, I'm not saying everyone's going to see it the same way I did, but I'm telling you, the day after I trusted Christ as my Savior, I woke up that morning and I walked out on the front porch And instead of having this overwhelming guilt and shame over my sin, my guilt and my shame had been lifted. That burden had been lifted and carried away from me. And I can remember walking out on the front porch and I felt light as a feather for the first time in my life. My sin was gone. I'll never forget it. And the sun really did shine brighter. And the birds really did sing sweeter because there was new life in me. There was a new hope in me. I didn't look forward to the future with, with uh, darkened eyes. I saw the future, I believe, bright and shining because now I'm a child of God and He is my Father. 
cannot express to you the kind of hope that flooded my soul when I placed my faith and trust in Christ. No longer was I fearful. That was another thing. Oh, do you remember how afraid you used to be before you got saved? I hope you do. I mean, every day was dreadful. I mean, literally dreadful. I I would, man, and I've told you this before, but I'm going to tell you again. I made sure that every time I got in the vehicle before my dad even put it in drive, my seat well was buckled and I had the strap correct, which as a, you know, 11-year-old boy, that's something you don't do. But the problem was I was an 11-year-old lost boy. And, I'm, and, and I hope my dad doesn't listen to this particular sermon, but he's always made me a little nervous when he drives. Now, don't get me wrong. He's a great driver. He knows what he's doing, apparently. He's done a great job of it all these years. But back then, I I was so nervous. I was so scared. Everything scared me. I went to bed scared. I woke up scared. Every time I got in the vehicle, I was scared. Every time we went anywhere, I was, oh, I couldn't hardly fly. I was so scared. The plane was going to crash, and I was going to split the gates of hell wide open. The day after I got saved, though, all that fear was gone. inexpressible hope. In the last feature, although there are many, but there are three mentioned here in Colossians chapter number one, there was real fruit in my life after I got saved. Verse five goes on to say, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, verse six, which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. I had gone before our church and I had told them all that I was called to preach. I had even preached multiple times in our church. I was in a little league baseball team. And I had invited all these different kids to church with me. And, and man, people just stood back in awe and wonderment thinking, man, look at this kid. He's 9, 10, 11 years old and he's got kids coming to church with him. And he's, got, he's doing all these things for God. And they thought that I was just right where I was supposed to be. And all the while there was something sickly wrong with my heart. And I knew it. And all the, all the attempts that I made, all, all the times that I tried, all the messages or little sermonettes, I shouldn't call them messages. I listened to my first sermon I ever, my grandmother recorded. The first, you will never, ever have an opportunity to listen to that tape. I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's not going to happen. It was two minutes and 23 seconds long from start to finish. I, can re- I honestly can remember after preaching that sermon, I thought I'll never be able to be a preacher. Because I'll never be able to preach longer than three minutes. <laughs> I really did. All that I tried to do, it seemed like I was just spinning my wheels. I, I was kind of like the, uh, oh, what's the guy that chases the road, road runner? I felt like Wiley Coyote. My, my feet would just go like this, but I wouldn't get anywhere until I got saved. And then I saw God begin to move and to begin to work and to begin to initiate and implement and produce true, genuine fruit in my life. And as Epaphras is reciting this to the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul is recognizing based on these proofs that their faith was real. The Apostle Paul knew they can do anything for Christ. Remember, it takes faith the size of a grain of mustard seed to move mountains. And, and Epaphras has just proven based on their lifestyle that their faith is absolutely real. And the, I believe the reason Paul's heart is leaping for joy is because he knows the potential of a church filled with people 
who have been truly born again. There are no limitations to that church. The last thing I want to look at tonight is the process of real faith. The process of real faith. Look at verse 5 and verse 6 with me again. And I want to point out a few words to you here that are significant because we're going to then turn to Romans chapter 10. That chapter that we so often misinterpret. And I'm going to drive home a truth that we never ever drive home in a portion of Romans 10 that we never ever talk about. The process of sincere faith. How does faith come to be in the soul? What is the process by which the Holy Spirit of God takes a heart that is faithless, a heart that is antagonistic or atheistic, even worse, and, and, and moves that heart and softens that heart and draws that heart and ultimately brings that heart to rest in Christ? How does that happen? I want to show it to you. Romans chapter, or I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1, look at verse number 5. The Bible says, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye, what's the word? Heard. Whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Jesus said what? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It's one of the reasons why right now, currently, I literally, about every other day, I'm grabbing Canaan by the shoulders and I'm looking him in the eye and I say, Bubby, you've got to listen. You've got to listen to your teachers. You've got to listen to your daddy when he preaches. You've got to listen when I read your Bible stories. You know why I'm telling him that? Because I know that his heart can never come to faith in Christ until he opens his ears and listens. That's how God has chosen to get faith into the heart is through the hearing of God's word. It's why God's word has been the epicenter of all the great spiritual battles throughout history. Why is it that the Bible was the thing that Satan tried multiple times to squelch and to destroy because he knew that faith came by hearing and hearing by the word of God? That's phase one. Look at verse number six now. It says, which is come unto you. Not only must there be a hearing of the word of God, but there must be an accepting of the word of God. Fact of the matter is you can hear it and choose not to accept it. You can hear it and choose not to be open-minded to it. That's the idea of what I'm trying to get at. When I talk about accepting it, I'm not necessarily talking about... Um, I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about a conversion type of acceptance. I'm really talking about just having an open mind and an open heart to it. Not closing the door to the gospel. That's phase number two. Fact of the matter is, the Colossian believers here, at, at, at step number one, they could have heard the gospel, but in verse number six, it says, which is coming to you, they could have said, no, 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 we don't want that here. But they didn't. They invited it on in. That's phase number two. Look on at verse number six. As it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit. Now this is where conversion takes place. The gospel getting into the heart as far as it being heard through the ears and finding a place in the heart, that doesn't bring forth conversion. The Bible says that the devils believe and they tremble. They know the gospel. It's whenever the gospel bears fruit in our lives. It's whenever it grows up from a dead seed and comes to life in us. 
You can hear the gospel. You can be open-minded to the gospel. But until the gospel comes alive in you, there's nothing. It's as though it's nothing to you. What is a, a, a kernel of corn until it's planted in the ground and until all the elements are just right? And then what? It comes to life. That's what faith does in us. And it's not until then that we can truly be born again. Step number four. Beyond conversion. Beyond hearing it. Being open-minded to it. It coming alive in us. Step number four is then going on to know it better. Look at verse number six again. It says, And bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God. Now, one of the things that I mentioned on Sunday, and I want to reiterate it again tonight because it is a very important thought. We don't know everything that has to do with salvation the moment we get saved. It's not required for us to know all the ins and outs and elements of salvation when we get saved. What is necessary is for us to know that we're a sinner and to know that Jesus is the Savior of all the world. And specifically, He is my Savior. He died, He was buried, and He rose again, thus making Him the Savior of all mankind. That's all that's necessary for me to know. But it's amazing, isn't it, how as we read and study and grow and come to church and listen to the preaching, how all of this begins to build up and build up and we begin to see the gospel in a clearer and more fulfilled way. Even to this day, I will hear a song or I'll hear a message preached or I'll see a little quote somewhere and I learn something new about the gospel. The gospel that I've preached hundreds of times. The gospel that I studied for years and years. The gospel that I have spent my entire life dedicating myself to. Each and every day it seems like there's something new coming to light. Continue on getting to know it and growing in it. And then lastly, the final phase in this process of faith is living it. Living it. The last two words in verse number 6, he says, And knew the grace of God, what? In truth. In truth, live out your faith. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We'll close here. Romans chapter number 10. And I want to, again, bring you to some verses that we very rarely ever go to. I don't know why. I really don't. I think I do know why, actually. I'm not going to tell you why. All I will say is this. One of the great blessings of my life was the fact that I did not go off to a singular Bible college. I'm very grateful that you all did not hold that against me coming here. Because you could, you could have. You had every right to say, I see on your resume here that you had three different college experiences. And there could have been a question as to my discernment my ability to know what God's will was, and for that reason, maybe I was jumping around. But all the while, I believed each of those phases was a phase God was bringing me through to get me to where I was in my education. And the reason I say all that is to say this. One of the great dangers, and, and, and listen, Bible colleges are great. I'm not downing Bible colleges. There's some wonderful, wonderful Bible colleges all across the nation. But one of the great dangers in a Bible college is that Whatever the way of thinking of that Bible college is, 
It's ingrained to you to such a degree and such a level that if God shows you something different, you can't be okay with that because that's not what your teacher told you in Bible college. Do you see the danger of that? And what I believe happened is I believe there were two or three big Bible colleges in our nation that adopted Romans chapter 10, verses about 9 through 13, as the final thought of salvation. And that was not ever, I believe, God's intention. And we adopted back in the early 1900s this prayer of salvation. It did not exist until the 1900s. You go back to the early 1900s, the late 1800s, all the way back to the apostles, the time of the apostles. You never, ever saw a, quote, prayer that led to salvation. It did not exist until about 1915. I'm not going to tell you the name of the guy that I believe introduced it. Many of you know the name. But the one thing I know is that something went wrong. And whenever I read Romans chapter 10, I don't stop at verse 13 because I don't believe verse 13 is the most important verse. I personally believe verse 14 is. Now let's read it in context. Jump at verse number 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's how we traditionally read that. I believe whenever this was written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this was how it was supposed to be read. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You know what was going on at this time period? You had a whole bunch of people that thought that the name of Jesus was a token name. It was just something you threw out there and just saw what happened. The name of Jesus is powerful. Even in the lips of the unbeliever. And you had a lot of people that were out there just testing the name of Jesus to see what would take place. And I believe things were happening. This was a special time in history. And what was going on is as they saw different things happening in correlation and relationship to the name of Jesus. You had all these people who didn't really believe in Jesus. They were just using His name to see what could take place if they threw it out there. And I can give you proof of this. There's multiple times. There's a time where the apostles come. Uh, I believe they come running to... Uh, I think they come running to Peter. I may be wrong. I'll have to look this up. I wasn't planning on sharing this. But they go run into one of the apostles and they said, Hey, they're out there. They're, they're, they're preaching the name of Jesus, but they're doing it the wrong way. They're doing it from a spirit of contention and something's just not right. And they come back with this response. Nevertheless, the name of Jesus is preached. That was the, You remember this? That's what was going on. And I believe the Apostle Paul is addressing this in Rome. And he's saying, you can call on Jesus all you want, but until you believe in the heart, there's nothing. That's what he's addressing here. Verse 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made. Now here's a word, unto salvation. The word unto in your King James Bible. Look it up. See what that word unto can also be translated as. You ready? I do no injustice to the text whatsoever if I read that verse this way. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made as a result of salvation. I do that text absolutely no harm at all. Changing out the word unto with as a result of. I... I, I there's just so much here, I don't have time to go through it all. Look at verse number 11. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew 
And the Greek, for the same Lord over all, is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, we stop there, don't we? But verse 14 is so imperative to verse 13. In fact, verse 14 clarifies verse 13 to say that if all you do is call on the Lord, there is no salvation. Look at it, verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Can't happen. Can't be done. You can call all you want. It doesn't mean anything if there's no faith. See what's going on here? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? There it is. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There it is. Real faith. Saving faith. Life-altering faith. That's where it's at. And I'll fall on my sword for this. And I am not in the popular way of thinking on this one. But I've seen what happens when you lead someone in a sinner's prayer after you've gone through the 13-point plan. Breathed in all the right places. Said all the right things in just the right tone, just like they taught you to in Bible college. And then you call them back a week later and they don't really want to take it that far. And on the flip side, I've seen what happens when you lead someone not to a prayer, but when you lead someone to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That is what brings about conversion. We're going to close a little different tonight. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I recognize it's a Wednesday night crowd. I know, I know what that means. I'd like to think it means that most everybody here, if not everybody here, is truly born again. But there were a lot of people that assumed that about me for about four years. They were convinced that I was saved and I wasn't. And I wish so badly at that time that the preacher would have preached a lesson like this. Because it would have clarified a lot of things for me. In fact, I wish that in the years after my conversion, that at some point I would have heard a lesson like this because it would have cleared up some doubts that I had about the sincerity of my prayer instead of the sincerity of my faith. So my question is this. I'm going to ask it in the positive. How many of you here tonight know that you know that you know that your faith in Christ is settled and that you truly are a child of God. Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed of it. Amen. Amen. If ever there's a question, ever a concern, you don't hesitate to come and talk with me. We'll take as much time as we need. The reason it's important for this crowd tonight to really get a handle on this is because this is the difference 
between being an effective soul winner and not. This is the difference between really making a difference and making no difference at all. This is where it's at. Leading folks to a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it's at. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We pray that you will use it effectively. Lord, I pray that it's been eye-opening, that it's been a blessing. I know in, in many ways I've taught this in the past already, but Lord, I pray that as we've taught it tonight, it's been fresh and new, and, and Lord, that it's been enriching to the soul. Lord, help us to see where we make mistakes, and Lord, help us to correct it. Help us, Lord, not to continue doing the same thing over and over again, but Lord, help us to make the changes necessary and to not try to lead people to church to not try to lead people to a prayer. But Lord, help us to pick up and begin leading people to Christ, begin leading people to you. And Lord, as we do this, I pray that we will see real lasting results. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.